Good morning again. We've been doing a series about um, only worshiping the Lord our God and not bowing the knee to any other but him. And we've taken a look at men and women who have been placed in challenging situations where if they did not bend the knee or bow the head that they would suffer life consequences. And we have seen how uh, men and women of faith responded in such situations. But oftentimes, we are not confronted with, with a governmental agency or culture or something that says, you're to do this, and if not, there are consequences. Sometimes we just live our lives and things happen, and we have our difficulties and problems and as some would say, opportunities. But then the question is, how do we respond? All too often, we respond by doing our own thing. Or if we seek God's counsel, we try to tell him how to do it. Uh, because somehow we think we are supremely well-informed on how God out of handle certain situations. And the only thing I can tell you is to kind of get you to think of this is that while we may be playing beginning chess, I'm, I'm sorry, beginning uh, checkers, God is playing five-dimensional chess. We don't even understand the concept. It's kind of like when we tell God what to do, it's like God telling Job, where were you when I formed the mountains? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the sea? And we, we kind of think that we should be able to tell God what to do. And I've heard an expression that says, if you want God to laugh, tell him your plans. Um, I'm not sure he takes it that, that well, but... Um, we're going to take a look today, so if you have your Bibles, please turn to 2 Kings chapter 5. And we're going to take a look at a few different people, how they respond to situations as kind of as life would, would handle, and we will see what their response is and what our response ought to be. And so in 2 Kings chapter 5, it says, Now Nahum, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master and a highly respected because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. And the man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. And so what we see is this man who is highly respected by those in charge, by the king, because he's a valiant warrior. He's been able to accomplish great things for his king, and he's therefore highly respected. Um, he's, he's a great man. But he has a problem. He's a leper. Now, as a leper, he's fortunate that he's not part of Israel. Because as part of Israel, he would have to be a social outcast. He would have to go along and say, unclean, unclean. And no longer would he be able to be the commander of the armies because that there would be this distancing from him until he became clean. And I'm sure even though there was not law in Aram that said 
that he was unclean, therefore he couldn't participate. Let's face it, if you saw somebody with skin that's kind of all yucky and kind of flaking and falling off, you don't want to be around them. It, there becomes a, if you will, a social distancing. And so he has this illness that's serious because if it allows to go on, literally parts of your body fall off. So this is not a minor illness. This is something that is substantial. Now, the Armenians had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. But she was a slave. And she said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. Now, I want you to see something that's very unique and distinct about this girl. She's been taken away from her family. She is now a slave, a servant. So you would think that her natural tendency would be, I hope he gets what he deserves, and I hope his ears fall off, and I hope his nose falls off, and I can't wait to see it. But that's not her response. Her response is, I want him to have good. Now, if this is not an example of loving your enemy, I don't know what it is. Isn't it interesting? Rather than saying, oh, I'm a victim, poor me. Maybe before Queen Esther, who was placed in a place of royalty for such a time as this. Maybe she was placed in slavery for such a time as this. And maybe you are in your circumstances, whether they're great or whether they're terrible, for such a time as this. And she takes this opportunity to say, there is a man in Samaria who is a godly man, a prophet. And if he were with him, God could do something. There is a God that deals with his people. Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who was from the land of Israel. So he, he responds and says, There may be hope for my illness. And I need permission, king, to go because this servant of mine, this girl, has said that I could be cured if I go to see Elisha. And then the king of Aram said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him 10 talents of silver and 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 changes of clothes. So he brings, if you will, a reward with him so that one probably to entice Elisha to heal him and then reward him for healing him. So he brings um, quite a, an amount of riches. Um, by way of a, a, a personal thing, I'd probably taken the talents of silver and, and gold. Uh, you could keep the clothes because I don't like clothes that other people buy for me anyway. But probably Elisha wasn't like me. And so he brings all these things hoping that Elisha will, will respond to him. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel saying, and now as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Nahum, my servant, to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. So part of the problem is the letter is sent to the king, but it's going to the wrong person. The little girl didn't say, 
the king of Israel and the king of Samaria will heal you. He said, Elisha, the prophet of God, will heal you. But again, people do what they think. Well, I'm a head of state. He's a head of state. We'll talk back and forth and we'll get this accomplished. So he's dealing with the wrong people. So he sends a letter. And when the king of Israel read this letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. Now his response is, is, is totally understandable because there is this raiding band of, of the people from Aram who were keep coming and they're, they took the little girl, they different, different stuff like that. As a matter of fact, the message we took at look last time happened after this incident. So war actually does break out between Aram and Samaria and the people. But so the king is thinking, okay, he set this up so that he has a reason to go to war. He goes, I'm not God. I can't cure. At least he understands his place. He may be king, but he's not God. And it happened when Elijah, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let now him come to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So the king had a correct but yet wrong response. The king's response was, I'm not God, but I know someone who deals with him. That is a prophet of God. And Elisha says, why are, you, why are you in a panic? Why are you depressed? Why are you, why are you um, miserable? Send them to me. Send them to me so that they may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Nahum came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elijah. So here's this respected man, a powerful man, a leader of armies, coming in essence with his army, saying, I'm a great guy. I'm a, I'm a respected warrior. And I am in command of, of men and chariots. So somebody who should be paid attention to. One of the problems with people who are respected and powerful, they think too much of themselves. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, so Elisha doesn't even go to him. Elisha sent, he comes to Elisha's house. Elisha doesn't even go out. Elisha sends a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored to you and you will be clean. You will not only be healed, but you'll be clean. Very significant. Not just, you're go what's going to happen is more than you've asked. You've asked to be healed. You're going to be healed and clean. He's going to get more than he had asked for. So you would think, okay, this is what the man of God has told me to do. And so you would think, then now that's what we'll do. We'll do what God says to do. And 
But Nahum was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hands over the place and cure the leper. He wanted a show. He wanted the guy to come out and do hocus pocus and whatever and get healed and everybody have this great revival. It didn't happen the way he thought. God almost never does things the way we think. And if he does, maybe it's not God. Just saying. So because he's powerful and respected, he thinks that some big deal should be made of him. And he's not disappointed. He's furious. Because God's not doing to him the way he thinks God ought to do it. And how many times have you heard people say, well, my God would never do that. Your God ain't God, so it's okay. God does what God does because God is God. Fortunately, he's a merciful, loving, powerful God who does things with mercy and love and kindness. And he's holy. He's separated. He is God. So, a lot of times we go and we expect God to heal us or to fix our finances or to do all these other things that he, we ask him to do. He doesn't do it the way we instruct him to do. I don't know as much about God as I would love to know. But I do know that he can do things far above my thoughts, my imaginations, my expectations. So why define him by what I think he should do? So maybe the prayer of, Lord, let your will be done, should be our prayer. Rather than God, fix it for me because I want you. And I want you to fix it for me. So that everybody says how God is special to me. Because they waved their hands and they did some stuff. And I was a well-respected guy. And I got special privilege. And then he goes on and says, Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could not not I wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. So he's going, okay, if I got to dump, if I got to dip myself in the water, how come I can't do it in some nice water at home? This Jordan River, you know, it's, it's chilly and all this, and why should I, why, isn't there a better place? And again, it's because he's special. He's wonderful. And let's face it, we think the same thing. We think we're special. We think God just spent the rest of eternity waiting for us just to be born. Because we're special. Oh, God's. So here's his opportunity to be healed. And he says, I'm angry, I'm out of here. Because God didn't do it the way I wanted him to. 
because of my position. But then he gets some really good advice. Then his servant came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done? How much more than when he says to you, wash and be clean? Look, at if he just said, I want you to defeat 10 armies, you'd have done it. You'd have said, I need you to, to climb the highest mountains, you'd have done it. If, there was some, if you'd have crossed the, the Mediterranean Sea and conquer the Spaniards, you'd have done it. He didn't ask you to do some great thing. He said, go to the River Jordan and dip yourself seven. You'd have done the great thing. Why not do what God said to do? So he went down and dipped himself seven times into the Jordan, according to the word of man of God. I want to stop here. Well, let me go on. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was. Now, I don't know how old Nahum was, but he's an adult. God didn't clean, uh, cure him by giving him, let's say he's 30. He didn't cure him by giving him the skin of a 30-year-old. He gave him the skin of a child. You see, our God does all things. And he restores you from where you would have been to like me. So when God talks about us being a new creation, he's not talking about new in the sense of new 30-year-olds. He's talking about we are new, brand new children of God. Now, why did he tell him to go to the Jordan? Let me give you three possibilities. Possibility number one, because the people of God crossed the Jordan River on dry land as they entered the promised land, and they wanted to remind Nahum of God. Or maybe it's because in a few centuries, there's one who's going to be baptized there who needed no cleaning whatsoever. But by his baptism, it was declared, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Or maybe he did it to make Nahum understand, you're a prideful man. And if you're going to allow your pride to get in the way of your healing, then so be it. But if you come to me as a little child, I'll make you like a little child. Because God says, I hate those who are prideful. And he tells us, pride because before the fall. Just like the rich man, when Jesus talked to him and said, if you go and give all your money to the poor and come and follow me, you'll have eternal life. And he went away sad because he was very rich. Fortunately, Nahum listened to his servant and didn't do what he had planned to do, but went and followed what God had told him to do. And we need to do that as well. Now, the story goes on and on. Um, he tries to give all of these 
great gifts and all this stuff to, to Elisha, and Elisha turns it down. And then uh, Elisha's servant runs off and tries to select on the uh, offer because he wanted to make money off the deal. And when he came back, lo and behold, he was stricken with leprosy. That's the end of the story. So uh, don't try to get rich off what God's doing. Let God do God things and you just be a part of it. Now God does God things. And he tells us that we are saved by grace through faith. And that not of ourselves, it is a gift of God that anyone should boast. See, he made a very simple plan. He goes, I'm going to give my grace to people who don't deserve it. That's why we're always having to convince people, well, how could some terrible, evil person be saved? Because we're saying no one ever justified receiving grace. All of us have sinned. All of us have come short of the glory of God. And as I say, not only have we come short of the glory of God, because as Jesus said, there is no one good but God. So if you're trying to get into heaven because you're good, you ain't getting in because only good is God. Second, even if you don't fall short of the glory of God, you don't fall, you fall short of the glory of you. And I keep repeating this over and over. I bet you can think of a time right now without having to think too hard. You did something you didn't think was right. Or you didn't do something that you thought was right and you didn't do it. You felt sure of the glory of you. So even if we're gaining on a scale and we can get in because we're not as good as God, we're not getting in because we're not as good as us. But God said, here's my plan. I'm going to send my son to die on a cross to be considered a curse and suffer the shame of that sacrifice so that it might take away the sins of the world. He didn't ask us to do anything great. He simply asked us to believe. If God would have said, I want you to take a peanut and go to the nearest interstate highway, and get on your hands and knees and push that peanut for 4.5 miles down the road during rush hour, and if you are able to accomplish that and still live, you'll get into heaven. We'd have more people pushing peanuts than we have cars. Because we think we should do something that God has already done for us. We try to convince people that God loves, but God is a God of justice and God, but but He's given us the opportunity through. His sacrifice through His work that no one should boast. And as Corinthians, 1 Corinthians says, chapter 1, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those of us who are perishing, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, we're letting God be God. It may seem odd and strange that a God who is all-powerful would send his son to die for us. And quite frankly, if I were in heaven, I'd probably counsel him against it. 
Because if every human being who ever was born and ever will be born was saved, it still wasn't worth Jesus dying on the cross. He's that infinitely valuable. In exchange for that, it says, narrow is the way and few who find it. Well, the whole world isn't getting saved. It's just those who come to him, those who have been saved by grace. And how do we know we're being saved by grace? Because of faith. It was given to us. So we understand that it is the power of God that we are now his children. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? The world thinks, if I just do enough good things, I'll make it. And you can never do enough good. This is not about being doing good things. It's about who you are in your heart. He's saying you can debate. You can be like Job and you can be like his friends and you can argue with God who God ought to do things and whatever. But God is God and he has set forth his determination and his plan. And he did that before he ever said, let there be light. God knew that you would be his daughter or his son before he ever spoke. That's how wise our God is. That's how powerful our God is. That's how awesome he is. For since the, in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. All you got to do is wander around today. How many people live their lives that, that there is no God? I shared about how mad, the majesty of God is declared. Believers can look into the heavens at night. And unfortunately, we here in the city see very few stars. But if you go out where it's really dark, you see a plethora of stars and this moon and all of these things. And, and to this week, we got to see a joining of Jupiter and Venus. And it was kind of cool and whatever. Speaks of the majesty of God. The world says, the universe is flying apart, and eventually it will die out and cold us. That's a wonderful prospect. They see that, and they see that conclusion. That's their wisdom. We see the stars, and we see a God who made them. We take a look at the body itself, the infinite beauty of the mechanism and simplicity and yet complexity of ourselves. And we see that there is a God. We take a look at our mathematics and we see statistically there's, there are not enough atoms in the entire universe to equal the number of probabilities that any one thing would happen in creation, let alone creation. The world sees all these things and doesn't see God. 
we see all these things and we understand that there is a God who is wonderful and powerful. And they didn't get to know him. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. God doesn't care what your opinion is of his plan. You didn't get a vote. The scripture says, whoever believes will be saved. I'd have written, whoever I like would be saved, and the ones I don't, eh, bring me a bunch of silver and gold and we'll talk. But that's not his plan. And I've seen God save men and women who you would have thought would never be saved. At an age in their lives that you would thought statistically would never happen. And I would see wonderful transformation in their life. But God is not bound by when I think somebody should get saved or not or the time schedule, or not, or their personality, or not. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. Here's the problem with signs. You can seek a sign, you can seek a miracle. Almost every time a sign or a miracle happens, it doesn't generate faith. It only confirms it, or renews it. If it created faith, the entire nation of Israel would have been 100% sold on their God because they saw things like the Red Sea being parted and a pillar of fire and a pillar of fire and God defeating enemies and doing all kinds of awesome things. And yet, as soon as Moses had gone up a little bit, they started creating their own little golden calf and started worshiping it. None of those signs and miracles ever created faith. The Jews are still seeking those things. And the Greeks are still searching for wisdom. And the problem is they're looking in all the wrong places. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. We should take the example of Nahum, and say, I'm going to do what God has called us to do because it's God's plan and it's God's world. All too often, we look for opportunities to be strong in the faith. And so if someone says, thou shalt not do this, we say, I'll get you and I'm going to do it. Sometimes life just gives us life. There's illness, and there's problems, and there's financial setbacks, and there's people that don't like us, and all kinds of other things that happen. And we just do 
that God called us to do. If God called us to do it, then he's God. And we do it under his plan, the way he has called us to do it. Because, let's face it, none of us are all that brilliant to begin with. There's a statement that says, if you are the smartest person in the room, find another room. I'm telling you, there's no place you can go that's smarter than being in this presence of God. Do it his way. Do it his way. The scripture says, doing it God's way. And the amazing thing is, as we're going to sing in just a minute, God's way is a way of making ways. He finds ways for us to come to him. He isn't content to just, as Jesus said, when there's one person who's lost, he goes out and finds them. God is a way maker. He makes a way to come to him. You may not be the brightest bulb in the, you might not be the sharpest tool in the woodshed, but God will find you if you're his. Be his. And all God's people say.